Yeah, where's it coming from? Let's find out. Welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me is Kendra Mauer. And tonight we're welcoming back Barbara Mango. We had such a good time talking with her and Kendra missed it and Kendra really wanted to talk with her. So I said, hey, let's have her come back. Now, before I let Barbara tell us all of the interesting things she's been doing since she's been here, um, I do want to give a little trigger warning here. We're going to be talking about some heavy subjects. We're going to have some real talk about sensitive issues. Um, we're going to be talking about death and dying and caring for a dying loved one and grief. And that can be traumatic to some people. So we just wanted to let you know right off the bat, we will not be offended if you decide to skip this one, come back to it later, or never listen at all. You can come back next week and we'll have something cheerful, I promise. Okay, so that's out of the way. Barbara, I am so glad to see you again. Can you give us a little... uh, update on all of the things you're doing because you told told us and it was great and I want everybody to hear. Oh, thank you. First of all, thank you for having me back and Kendra, I'm so glad I get to speak with you this time. Same. I was really bummed. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm really happy. Yeah, a few things have come up. Um, First thing I wanted to mention is I will be speaking at the 2021 It's going to be an online conference this year. So it's a 2021 IONS conference, which stands for the International Association of Near-Death Studies. It's a national conference they hold yearly. I'll be speaking September 4th, which is a Saturday evening this September. And I'm not going to be talking about my book. I'm going to be talking about the critical need for compassionate patient-centered care. And I specifically will be directing that towards hospice care. Um, It will be a joint presentation. I will be presenting with Lee Whitting, who hosts uh, TalkZone NDE Radio, because Lee has been, gosh, for like 25 years, I think he's been a chaplain and he uh, ministers to the dying be it at a hospital or hospice or whatever. So we will be jointly presenting that. And in the meantime, I've registered for a program. It doesn't begin till early um, next winter. And I will be trained to be a group facilitator for people who have undergone spiritually transformative experiences and need help navigating those. And then this past week, I have been looking into end-of-life doula training. I have mm, probably about six different programs I'm looking into. 
Uh, I'm not sure how I want to go forward with that training, uh, be it uh, educating the community or, uh, you know, I'm not 100% sure yet, but I just, I felt a calling. You know, I don't know, sometimes yeah. something will just hit you. I wrote the book. I loved writing this book. I really believe in this book. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I felt there was another piece of my journey that I hadn't quite tapped into yet. And I don't know, this week, I just, I, I heard a voice in my head scream hospice, scream, you know, death mm -hmm. and dying. And I felt compelled to look into doula training. So yes, I've actually been looking yes. at similar um, after my experience that we'll get into later, but I've been looking at death doula training because it's just people don't realize how much I think the person who's passing crave things just like touch. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So isn't that, that's, that's, I mean, I hate to say strange, whatever, but I had no idea you were doing that, Kendra, that we were both looking. I, it is. As we brought it up earlier, I was like, oh my gosh. No, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, so. So that's what I've been up to since we last spoke. Excellent. That that is that's, fantastic. Um, that is perfect. I'm going to hand hand over to Kendra at this point. Okay. Then Kendra's a little nervous because Kendra's never been lead. On purpose. <laughs> so this is kind of a conversation that I've wanted to have. Um, and I, I'm kind of enjoying the fact that I can seize an opportunity to kind of share this kind of conversation with other people, because I think a lot of people go through very similar experiences when someone they love is dying or has died. And I feel like it needs to be normalized. I feel like more people, everyone needs to realize that I don't believe there is local consciousness, meaning I don't think it's just in our brains and I don't think it's just in our bodies. Um, and my experiences have kind of guided me in that direction. Um, so I've experienced a lot of death, um, of people I care very deeply about. So bear with me as I unpack some of this and it, it kind of culminates in my mother's death. Um, and, and my experiences after that. Um, when I was in college, my sister-in-law passed away. Um, she was having a DNC surgery and they were going to cauterize because she was having bleed issues. And the doctor had set the laser too high, severed her, her uterine artery, and she bled out on the table. Oh. Um, the weekend prior to that, our whole family was at a bonfire at my uncle's place in Indiana. And she pulled me aside and she, I was engaged to somebody else before my husband. And she said, you know, I just want to let you know that I'm, I'm happy because I can see you're going to be taken care of. And um, what was it like to grow up without your dad? My dad died when I was eight. And I, um, I, I told her, and then she said, because I'm really worried about this procedure, I don't think I'm going to make it. So when I heard the news, I knew even my brother was like, we never had that conversation. And I said, well, <laughs> she was worried about it. I think she didn't want to freak you out. 
Um, and as I mentioned, my dad died when I was eight. Um, and I, he died in the house we were living in. And from eight on, I could sense and see his presence around the house. Um, even my sister moved into the house later. Even my nephews saw him. They called him the smiling man because he would stand at the foot of the bed and smile down at them. Um, so fast forward, sounds really weird. A few deaths later, um, my nephew got sick with 9-11 related leukemia. Um, I was pregnant with my oldest at the time. And at one point he had a hemorrhage, a brain hemorrhage and was unconscious. Um, he and I were pretty close. Um, this was his, he had two rounds that he went through with it. We, um, I flew out, I was 30, I don't know how many, I was really pregnant at the time, but I flew out to be with him and my sister. Um, and when I was there, he was, his body was present, but his, it felt like he was just waiting. Like he wasn't really there anymore. Um, after a, about a week, they did take him off life support and we held his hand and talked to him as he passed. Um, later that week, I got snowed in to Manhattan and I was at one point certain that I was going to give birth in Manhattan, but um, I slept in his loft. He was born in that loft and I slept there um, after he passed. It's loft laws and stuff with Manhattan. But at one point I had an extremely, one of those, we call it the goodbye dream. It was an extremely vivid I was laying on the sofa. Actually, now I realize it. Where I was laying in that apartment was where his sofa was, where the sofa was when he was born. And he was born in that spot. And we were having a conversation. And he said to me, at one point, I just want you to know that it's okay over here. It's not what I expected, but it's okay. And I'm going to be okay. And you're going to be okay. We talked a little bit more, and I remember thinking, it's got to be really hard for you to be right there. And in my head, I was turning to look at his ashes on a shelf. And when I, I looked, and then when I looked back, he was gone. And I realized that he just didn't, the energy wasn't present for him to maintain that connection. Um, but it was amazing that to me that he, he let me know because he had told me about a dream he had had where his dad who had passed had come back and said pretty much a very similar thing, not the same, but very similar. Um, so fast forward again, a few, a couple deaths later, um, the long story, the longish medium, the medium story is, my uncle, who had taken part in raising me, passed away in New Orleans. We, my mom really wanted to go, so we flew down, flew down to New Orleans together, went to the funeral. She was in extreme pain while she was down there. She was not well. 
um, got back up to Ohio and I had to take her to the emergency room. And it was in the emergency room that she was diagnosed with cancer. Um, took him a few days to get around to telling us that yes, it's stage four pancreatic cancer. Um, but when they told her, when they told us, I was, I, I, I knew it was coming, but I didn't at the same time. And she looked at me and she nodded and she said, it's okay. I'm ready. And of course I'm like, okay, don't comfort me. I'm supposed to comfort you, but I'm a mess right now. And she held me and we just kind of laid there for a while and adjusted to our new reality. Um, very rough 19 days later, she passed away. Um, in those days, I, um, I held her every night. I slept in bed with her and held her every night. Um, and we had some very close and intimate conversations. We'd sing together and we would just exist together. And it was a very peaceful. Um, my kids were with me through this. So they would take turns cuddling with her and spending time with her. And for them, it was a positive thing because they got to experience someone where death is traumatic for us, but not for her where she was, she was at peace. So I feel like that was kind of a, she gave them a gift. And I think she knew that. Um, the interesting thing is, is I had to come back to Columbus while she was in the hospital. And I was, I came up and I picked up your book. <laughs> it, it finally arrived. And then I, when I got back and I had started texting you because I'm like, there's just such synchronicity in this that it was staggering. And your book really helped me. Ooh, now I'm going to get teary. Your book really helped kind of ground me and make me understand the processes better and to come to a sort of peace with what was happening around me. And what was happening at that point was absolute chaos. But it was like this. So thank you for answering my texts when I'm like, I don't want to bug you, but my life is falling apart. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah. And I could feel that. And that was so helpful to me. Um, and I sent you a text at one point where after she had passed, where I I she passed away. I watched her take her last few agonal breaths and then she was gone. And for a period of time in the room, I would, I still felt her. I fixed her hair. I caressed her face like I had been doing. I'd sing to her, you know, and just for me, there was just, I continued the processes that we, she and I, our little dance sort of, that we were engaged in. And uh, I left the room for a minute for, I forget why. And when I came back at that point, she was no longer in the room. It's like, I could feel that she, she was gone. Um, a few days later, 
I'm just going to get into kind of the experiences that I had um, after her death. I'm laying on the sofa just deep in my own guilt and I'm not there anymore. It's okay. I, I'm, it, it, I was working through some stuff, but I'm laying there and I'm really churning and I'm really just beating myself up over some things. And I was watching TikToks because that's my new favorite way to dissociate. <laughs> and <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah. But I'm scrolling along, and at one point, I'm just staring at the screen. I'm not paying attention to what's happening. And the screen buffers, and I get this wash of my mother's presence and her letting me know it was okay and I needed to release the guilt. And it was just, I just laid there, you know, I, I couldn't believe how that felt. And it was such a, again, it was such a gift. So came home for a little bit. We've held onto the house. We're still working on clearing it out so we can get it sold. But we, I went back there um, on a Wednesday to see my eldest sister who flew in from Manhattan. And hang out with her without the kids and without the family for a couple of days before we had to really get the work done. And uh, Thursday night, we, we drank a tremendous amount of wine on Wednesday night. It was fantastic. I learned things about my dad because everybody's like, he's not into UFOs. And Christy's like, oh, he was into UFOs. I'm like, <laughs> good. It's not just me. Oh. <laughs> I was like, finally. And she's like, ah, he and grandpa talked about that all the time. And he did stuff in NORAD and this and that. And I'm like, okay, thank you. I, I didn't just dream this up. So um, I didn't go home the next day because I think I was still drunk. <laughs> we <laughs> drank so much. <laughs> but um, Thursday night, I get awakened out of a dead sleep to the sound of someone walking around the house. And I'm like, that's not a normal house sound. I've slept in her house and in that in her room enough that I know the normal sounds of the house, this was not it. The next morning, my sister goes, so there were some sounds last night? I'm like, yeah, I think that was mom walking around. I said, I just, she's like, kind of got, she believes, but she's very skeptical. And I'm like, look, this is not, normal for the house. I promise you this was, this was an anomalous sound. Driving home. I had to drive home that morning. So back, gosh, over the last year, I had set an alarm on my phone to text her at 10 o'clock every morning to give her a good morning text to make sure that I remembered to, you know, touch base with my mom every day. And I had shut it off after she passed, because at that point it became a bitter reminder that I was no longer going to be sending that text. That morning I'm driving home and the 10 a.m. text goes off or the 10 a.m. alarm. And I'm like, that was her. So that was kind of the neat. And that's kind of the last time I really got a strong sense of her. But at one point I was laying in bed thinking about, because when my dad died, all I could think about, and I don't know why this went through my head at eight years old, but I'm like, 
when I'm 10, he's going to be dead. When I'm 20, he's going to be dead. When I'm, you know, I just kept going through my ages going, he's going to be dead. Dead is he's, I'm never, he's gone. And, but I felt his presence through my life now. And again, I'll get a little nudge, but I'm laying in bed thinking about time. And my mom is a believer that all time is now. We are the eternal. We're just a, a phase of the eternal. And she's like, you want a forest primeval? You are in one. It's just we're in a different time, but you were present in that now. And I got this neat little thought process where I it I I just finally grasped onto it where I'm like, because I'm like, do they follow us through our lives? How does that go? Then I'm like, if all time is now, I'm right now, I'm experiencing my death at another point in time. And she is there in that particular phase of now. And I just, it, I just, I've been wrapping my head around that and kind of like doing mental games around everything, everywhere is all, all time is now. So I think I'm done with that part. There is a lot. Um, and I think a lot of other people have these experiences. I don't think I'm unusual. I don't think I'm rare. Um, but I wonder, is there a way to help people ease their own passing? So they can, I, I started, call, after my nephew passed, I started calling it the step aside. They're not gone. They just stepped outside of the physical body into another adjacent space. You know, what can we do to help people take that step and not have it a traumatic clawing? I should say, I also lost a good friend of mine in, in late December um, to cancer. So it's just, it's kind of been a year of, of introspection and really thinking about death and the process of death and what people are going through as they go. And it's a thing we're all going to do. Nobody gets to survive this. So how can we, we make it better for other people so that, you know, you don't have to die alone. Yeah. Well, first of all, I wanted to tell you when you were sharing your story, I almost started crying. Um, no, 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 because it wasn't that. It was very powerful. It was like beautiful. You, you know what I mean? Very um, and so I'm, I'm now a little emotional. Um, you know, a few things as you were talking, I was very moved. I still am. I'm emotional. Um, I, one of the most powerful experiences of my early childhood was when my uh, fraternal grandmother came to visit me in a very big, powerful way. Six months after she died, I had tremendous guilt. Um, but it was sort of like a paranormalish appearance. Um, you know, I had three major deaths, not 
like you. I, it was my grandmother when I was 13. My maternal grandmother was very close to died of cancer when I was 17. And we were, my grandfather refused to tell her she was dying. That was very traumatic to me. And then my father in 2016, and um, I wrote a, I was asked to write a chapter about that in a book um, called The Transformative Power of Near-Death Experiences. And I actually, my, I was writing the chapter next to his bed in a hospice. And I had these deadlines and I, I don't even know how I did it. It was, it was just, I mean, you know, your brain, you, you're just fried, right? And um, yeah. so, and it was a very spiritual um, beautiful, as beautiful as it can be. I mean, you know, it's sort of, to me, it's comprised of two parts. We are in our human body. We are experiencing our human emotions. We have our ego. We have everything that comes with this 3D reality. And, you know, we're trying to process the death of somebody we love and we are grieving. We are you know, we are taxed emotionally, we are taxed spiritually, we are taxed physically. Sometimes we don't know how we're going to put one foot in front of another. But mm -hmm. if we have a loved one who is open to possibilities, I, this is what I believe. Yeah, yeah. And maybe, can't say doesn't have any fear, but you know, uh, it is maybe fearless, willing to talk, but most importantly, they have a person or persons present that listen, that love, yeah. listen, and validate. Um, I don't know if your mother went through this, but I think this is really important for people listening to this. It's just, I think it is. One mm -hmm. of the things that I am going to talk about at the conference but I, I just hold really close to me is when people come close to dying they don't speak the way most a lot of them most of them don't speak in our normal language they do but they don't they use some symbolism I don't know if you ever found that um but it's a different type of language like my father I mean it's obvious if you listen what they're talking about like my father would talk many times right. of going to a party the beers right. were waiting you know to throw a party in his honor well you know I think right <laughs> they're waiting for him to transition yeah. it's all waiting for him to transition um yeah right and so it's very symbolic and 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 so my point is you know my problem was that you sound like you had a very loving, supportive, everybody was sort of on the same page, which was really touching to me. And that's the part that almost made me cry. Um, no, I was no. the only one in my family that was on that page with my father. My father wasn't afraid to die. My father was a total atheist. He was a hard, well, we grew up in a Jewish home, so there is no such thing as a Jewish atheist, but he used to say he was. And I'm like, that's an oxymoron. That doesn't, you know, that's ridiculous. Stop saying that. <laughs> You're an atheist. But he actually had no fear of dying. Zero. None. So it's okay. zero. And, and mm -hmm. but I was the only person that I guess was able and willing to just be by his side. Like you, touch, caress. I, didn't, I can't yeah. sing. I sound like a frog. So I would play. He loved classical music. So I would find, you know, um, 
beautiful classical music that he liked. He liked a certain type. And I would prop up the phone next to him and be like, oh, my God, this is beautiful. And I remember once I was caressing his hands and his fingernails were really long. And I was like, would you like, would you, Dad, would you like a manicure? Would you, would you like me to do that for you? Would you like a pedicure? Yes. And, and I think, too, that some people are afraid to, to touch somebody that's dying because it's, mm-hmm. I don't know why. It's, it's, they are. it's still the same it's, person, you know? And I used to say, Dad, you know, he said, well, I'm dying. I go, well, you're not dead yet, Dad, and you're my dad. <laughs> Nothing has changed. Yeah. You're physically becoming weaker, yes. You're slowly leaving, yes, this dimension. But your dad, I mean, what? And I'm not going to catch death. Right. But, but so that another thing that touched me is I called, you know how you said it was a gift. That was the name of my chapter, Mm -hmm. the gift of being. Oh, wow. Because the big, my father gave me the gift of watching him and kind of guiding me through his transition because he would tell me he had like three spiritually transformative experiences that in essence turned this hardcore atheist within a very few weeks into a total believer. And I don't mean a religious believer. I mean a believer in like non-locality and the consciousness survives death and that, you know, we are able to experience things on the other side Mm -hmm. before we actually get there. Um, That, mm -hmm. that was my nephew. He was an atheist. And then as he was getting closer to death, he was, he was like, yep, there's something after this. Yeah. That's amazing. It is. So this, I don't know if this will help anybody, but I tried, I I had to think of a way to try to describe this in the book. So I I thought of an onion. I think one day I was like making a salad or something and, and, you know, onions make you cry anyway. And I was looking at the onion. I'm like, oh my God, how many layers are on this thing? And you know how you keep peeling it and peeling it. So I thought, oh my God, this is sort of what my dad and dying people go through, right? It's almost as if you peel every layer would be our 3D life, you know, the denseness of this life yeah. and the ego. And I don't mean being egotistical. I just mean this is how we have yeah. to navigate this physical life, right? And as you peel up each level, at level, excuse me, layer and another layer and another layer till you endlessly peel up layers and you finally get to the very, very, very little mm-hmm. center of the core. To me, I related that to the soul, right? So as you're dying, if, if a person sits with the dying one and can understand that as each little layer of our physical everyday being gets taken away, we're getting closer and closer and closer to the true essence of who we really all are. And it's so beautiful if we can, if we can picture that in our mind and try, although it's so scary for most of us and it's so, I mean, to say it's sad is really a gross understatement right but yeah. if we can realize that and we can sit there and be there with them then we can allow them mm-hmm. and and they are willing to share that yeah. with us. they're they're almost willing to share that journey and that piece of their soul that we never got to see before that was my experience yeah. and it helped yeah. me it helped me and it also helped heal our relationship you sound like you had a amazing relationship with your mother i had a very conflicted relationship with my father um he never told me once he loved me growing up i never heard that in my life um he did not stop saying it as he died he became a different person it was almost like did you feel this kendra do you ever feel 
and I'm not saying with your mother, but in the other deaths, you experienced mm-hmm. or in your, just in your, your way of looking at it now mm-hmm. that, um, sometimes if someone knows they have a certain time limit, it's almost like they're given a second brief chance to make some changes or heal some wounds or mm-hmm. become maybe that person that they didn't quite manage to get to. Um, Some people can actually take advantage of that. And it's just an amazing, beautiful thing. That's how I, my mom. Yeah. My mom laid out some truths that I'm like, mama, if you'd have told me that 20 years ago, I'd have a different life trajectory. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, then she apologized to all of us for marrying my stepdad. Wow. It was, it was the single worst decision she made. Um, apologies to any of my step family that's listening to this, but he was not a good person if you had that close in your life. Um, he was, he wasn't abusive. He was, he was neglectful. Mm-hmm. He, he was emotionally abusive. So there wasn't a phys- physicality of it, but, um, she being a good Catholic girl felt that she had to stay married until death did us part. And eventually she came to recognize at least in her belief, because even though they divorced, she still went to the nursing home and visited him. And she's like, you know, till death does part doesn't mean I have to be around him, but he's still there. And, you know, I've taken care of this little old man that I'd have compassion for if he weren't my ex. So that was her kind of thing for him. But yeah, she, did seize that opportunity to kind of write the one of the biggest things that my siblings and I were upset about. And she had apologized individually to us in the past or kind of alluded to it, but she made it just like a definite grand statement of it. And that was everything for all of us. Right. It's very healing. And, and um, that's the other opportunity. I think gift, I say it's a gift. Is the first thing my father said to me that blew me away because, you know, Mr. Atheist, one day he said to me one morning, he said, you know, this is really weird. And I said, what do you mean, dad? Well, what do you mean by weird? He said, well, it's really weird. He said, I keep going between two dimensions. I said, dad, can you explain that to me? And he said, well, I, I wake up and I'm here in my hospital bed. And he said, and then I will go to the other side where these beautiful glowing beings are waiting for me and talking to me. And then I come back and I'm here. And I was, dad, really? And, but he said it very matter of factly, just, you know, like he was discussing the weather. And so from that point on, you know, even though he wasn't probably yet ready to admit anything. I was like, dad, wow, this dad, this is what I write about dad. This is what I study. This is, do you kind of, are you, are you seeing that the, the, the physical being is just, I mean, it's very restricted. It's very limiting. And when you're going to the other side and it's so vast and enormous and amazing, and then you come back, do you feel like squished and restricted in your physical body? He said, yes. And I was, I was like, oh my gosh. So from that point on, we really spoke openly. You know, I would ask him what things were like. He would tell me. And, um, 
But my problem was, and I can say this because I have discussed this with my family openly, Mm -hmm. so I'm not saying, and I'm not saying this to be mean or in any way derogatory. It's just like a factual thing because I'm just trying to, you know, to help anybody who might be in a similar situation. So my father, we were in the family room, a hospital bed was set up in the family room, and my sister, I live in Connecticut. My parents lived in Hollywood, Florida, which is outside of between Fort Lauderdale and Miami. So I was working part time, but I told my employers I was nannying. You know, I, I, I've got to be with my father. I'm sorry. I hope you can find some temporary, you know, help. My sister was not working. And I had had this grand plan that we would take turns going down and helping, you know, my father because it's it's a lot. And she had told me, I don't do death. And I'm like, okay. So, you know, I, I was very upset and let down and felt, okay, this is on me. But at the same time, I tried to be respectful because, you know, we, we all have to handle things our own way. Um, and I went down and as I mentioned, I think before I came from a very abusive home. My mother was very physically and emotionally and psychologically abusive. And my father, the reason I had mixed feelings or conflicted feelings towards him is he enabled her abuse. You know, he, um, she would go, you know, go into one of her rages and, and physically abuse us. And my father would say, okay, you know what? You've got your mom really upset. You need to go apologize. So I had, oh, it, I Jesus. loved my father because he was, I, you know, yeah. I know it was awful, but he was the more lovable of the two, I did love my father, but I had a lot of conflicting feelings, just a lot of anger, a lot of yeah. conflicting feelings. So when he said this to me and he talked about the two dimensions, I said to myself, you know what? I think I think we might be able to have some very healing conversations for both of us. And it was really important to me. So we were in the family room and hospice was there. He was in hospice. So there were always two hospice workers around at all times and my mother was in the room my sister was in Connecticut not doing the death thing my mother was in the room and my mother she couldn't handle this she didn't handle it um it you know my mom and again it's just just how it was it's it's always about my mom right so she couldn't be there for my dad because this was really my dad's transition, right? And she just was screaming and yelling at everybody, at me, at the hospice personnel. And when my dad would say things like the beings want to have a party for me and, you know, they're waiting for me, she would just scream and yell and say, you are crazy. You are hallucinating. Barbara, don't listen to your father. He's crazy. Uh, And here's the thing. Every yes, and but this is what I also wanted. This is really important for me, but I think it's important for other people to know too. Is in hospice, if there's any, at least the hospice my father was in, I'm sure they're all very similar. But anytime a patient developed a new symptom, right, or became more critical or in heightened distress, a physician would be called. It would call, I think they termed it going critical or something to that effect. And I noticed a pattern. There was a distinct pattern that every time he tried to share his story of these 
phenomenal experiences he was just mesmerized by. Because again, he's he's seeing for the first time in his life, he's seeing, whoa, yeah. my whole like worldview, my whole paradigm is shifting. And he was yeah. just loving this. And and so every time he would be shouted down or told he was crazy or denied the reality of his experience, there was a direct correlation by that evening, the physician would have to be called because he'd crash. Um, you know, he yeah. might develop a fever yeah. or the next time he'd develop a cough or the next time he'd need more oxygen. And yeah. it just showed me, you know, that it, the lack of validation and he was expressing reality as he saw it, right? Right. Um, right. And, and just because someone in the family may not believe it, the patient believes it, and it's real to them. And how can you deny them that? So that was so upsetting to me. And, and because he didn't have the physical strength to, to have a discussion about it, he would crash. Um, it was yeah. heartbreaking yeah. to me. So that's what I'm trying to say. It's so important whether yeah. you believe what they're saying or not, just to be there and, and to understand that it's real to them and be respectful. I feel like there almost needs to be like um, denial training. Yeah. Somebody can yes. speak to the people in denial and say, take a step back that you are not creating a peaceful situation. You've got to figure this out, you know, either step away, but sometimes they don't, that's the opposite of what they want to do. So right. I, I, I don't know what the answer to that is because, you know, to try to tell someone who's in denial that they need to walk away, uh, that could yeah. turn violent, I'm sure. But uh, I, the, I think the hardest part is dealing with people who are in denial when you know what's going on. Exactly. So, yeah, that was that was kind of my main thing was to keep everything, you know, that was that on the other side of the threshold. Right. Right. Whereas her room was her sanctity. And I, I, um, like I made sure the bed was made exactly the way she always liked it and made sure what she could see was everything she liked to see. Except the awful Virgin Mary statue that I wouldn't <laughs> let go of. And she's like, would you please? So I have this thing where I'd always steal the baby Jesus and relocate the baby Jesus. So one time I was at Goodwill and somebody's art project was there and it was a pregnant a pregnant Mary on a donkey and it was fairly poorly painted. And I bought that for my mom. And I'm like, here, it's the only Jesus I can't steal. And she's like She's like, this thing is awful. I'm like, I know. So at one point at one point She's laying there and she goes, Kendra, Kendra, come here. I said, what do you want, mom? She goes, get rid of that goddamn stitch. <laughs> so it's actually brought it home. It's here somewhere. but It really is an awful statue. Oh my God. It's actually an entertaining story, but, um, <laughs> yeah, my thing, so you were lucky that you had that. We were all in one room 
because it was the only room that really could accommodate my dad's bed. And I could not, you know, I had many talks with my mother um, about, you know, this isn't about you. We need to keep it calm for dad. We need, and you know, hospice would talk to her. I would talk to her. My husband would talk to her. But I think, you know, just like in, you know, as in everywhere, there are some people that training is essential. Like that's, I'm so big on compassionate care training. It's, you're right. What you said before you were sure training. And I think so many people can benefit for that. The great majority can, there will always be that small portion though, right. That they just, they can't hear it. Right. It's not going to happen. So unfortunately my father was surrounded by chaos and that was, that was really hard. So once he started having these experiences and, you know, he was really, it was just beautiful. He was sleeping one day and I said to myself, you know, I know he can hear me if I speak to him telepathically because my mom's over there, like, you know, having whatever, just going nuts. Hospice is trying to like remain calm on that corner. And I need to have this conversation with my dad while he's still here. So I held his hand and I just said to him telepathically, you know, because I did, this was a conversation between us. It was very private and I needed, you know, I thought we both needed the healing. So I, this what I'm saying, I'm saying it out loud, but this was all telepathic. And I said, dad, if you can hear me, squeeze my hand. And he squeezed it right away. And he said, okay, I need to talk to you while you're still here. I said, you know, I, I was really hurt when you didn't, you know, protect. I felt like I wasn't protected right against the abuse. And, you know, I just went on and we had, I, I told him everything I felt. And he said, you know, so how does that sound to you? And and do you like in looking back, do you, you know, do you feel like you would have done something differently? So we, we had this telepathic communication and he kept squeezing my hand and I kept saying, dad, are you really hearing me? If you're here, if you're really hearing me, like squeeze it three times and you would. And I sat there That's and amazing. it was so wonderful that we could have a conversation and it was private. Because there was no privacy. So that's the other thing, if I could share like a beast, you, you know, when a person is, is transitioning, and I think we're leaving that, we're starting to leave that dense, heavy body, our vibration rises, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And usually telepathy happens at a higher level of vibration. So it is possible mm-hmm. to speak to our loved ones and have a communication without having to speak out loud. It truly is. At least I was. I had that experience. Did, were you able to do that, Kendra, or was yours always verbal? Ours was. It was always the the words were always verbal, but I think we communicated emotion very fluidly. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no problem picking up on where she was and what she was doing kind of thing as she was, as she was going. And I think she felt the same for me. So, yeah, I think that's so important. Um, I think a lot of people don't know that, you know, that would just wouldn't occur to them, but especially if you can't be alone and there is something you need to say, you can do it. You don't have to, you know, you could say whatever you want. And because that person, they no longer have their need to be defensive or be angry. And you can have the most, it's almost like a soul to soul conversation. Yeah. It's right. And, and so, yeah, I wish that was something that I would love to talk to people about that. I think that would be a big help for people to understand. Don't you? 
Yeah, I do. I do. Um, and I think it, honestly, I think any education would be good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I think there's just kind of a, you know, the death is the thing that you do on your own. And I'm like, I don't think it has to be that way. There's no right. need for it. There are no, there are other cultures that don't do that. Right. And I don't understand why we get so weird, like just about the whole process of it. Like not letting the person know that they're passing or not, you know, letting the family come to grips with this person's passing. Because one of the things that frustrated me about hospice, and I love hospice. Those people are angels. They, it was amazing. One of the frustrating things though, that I felt was they would say, because they're in their experience and partly because they have to, you know, you know, she may die this week. She may die next year. Or she, you know, we've had patients linger in this condition for months. And I get why they're saying that, but it kind of seemed to delay the acceptance of the reality of this person's imminent death. Because at one point I was laying with my mom. I went out every day. There was this little clump of daffodils that was blooming. So the goal of my dad, backtracking, why the daffodils? So my dad just wanted to live long enough to see the daffodils bloom. And he died the day they bloomed. Oh, like gosh. they bloomed later that day. Wow. So as my mom's, as my mom, I, every day I went and took pictures of the little clump of daffodils and I brought those pictures to her every day so she could watch the daffodils bloom. And she actually died six hours short at the anniversary of my dad's death. Oh. Um, he came early for, her. he didn't want her. To yeah. Wait. He, they were both I, tired of waiting. Um, but, um, at one point we're laying there and she said, two months? I don't think so. More like a few weeks. I or more like one month. And I said, Yeah, I'm with you. She goes, It hurts and I don't I just I can't make it. I'm like, you don't have to, I got you. Um but I felt, you know, she knew, I knew. And hospice can't say it's going to be a few days because they don't know. But it does. It delays the acceptance of the other people who are experiencing this as well. Because some people are able to take a, a piece of information like that and go, hey, we got this. You know, she'll be fine. Or she'll she'll recover. Or, you know, she'll rebound. And it when it doesn't happen, it, that that becomes part of the problem as well. Right. I agree. And I think uh, a dying patient often has a very strong sense of how much time they have left. And I think we really, again, it's part of the listening and accepting process. But yeah. I, I mean, death, you know, I used to be terrified of dying, probably because when I was very little, my parents were atheists and they would be oh my god when you die there's nothing there's nothing it's just black right and so I, as a kid i'd be oh my god it's just going to be black and i'd literally have a panic attack um yeah. and then i started having my own experiences and was showing something very different but you know i think this is my own opinion um i don't know how you feel or what your experience is but i think it's also culturally based and religious uh you know based in religious belief yeah and mm -hmm. There, are, 
I have known so many people who are so terrified of dying and, and they attach there's stigma, there's guilt, there's yeah. fear, um, there's, you know, it's very black and white. Death is very yeah. black and white. But honestly, it's like a thousand gray, shades of gray, right? And so I don't know, you know, I, I guess education has to center around too, um, culturally and and. Mm-hmm. And again, some people like, you know, when my father-in-law died, he um, he didn't have the opportunity to talk about anything because he was very, very, very rigidly Catholic. And, you know, the family was very okay. traditionally old school Catholic and you didn't talk about these things. You know, we don't talk about mm-hmm. our feelings. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't talk, you know, we're and nobody was willing to let him go. Like I was sitting in the hospital, you know, it was, it was in the hospital and I was sitting in the room and I could feel his, his presence passing through me. He, he had not left yet. He had not transitioned yet. And I, as he, I felt like a waves of energy coming through me and he's, I want to go. I want to go. And I said, mm-hmm. you can go. But meanwhile, the family is draped across his body in the hospital. Like, I mean, literally yeah. draped. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Mm-hmm. And I almost wanted to cry and said, you're not letting him go. You're not letting him go because mm-hmm. you fear death so much because you come from, yeah. you know, the way yeah. you believe it's very fear based. And this isn't yeah. fair to him. So I don't know how that educational piece would take place. It's, but I think that's it's, important. It's the use of the afterlife and the implication of punishment. Yes. In the afterlife that creates, because, you know, people that leaves people open as they're dying to say, was I good enough? Yes. And that's enough to keep someone from letting go peacefully, because what if I wasn't? Right. And so there's so many pieces, you know, and, and in this whole process, um, uh, and I think the individual themselves too, like my father was very progressive and open and, and I remember, but he didn't believe in any of this, of course, prior. And, and, you know, he used to always tell me, you know, I'm really proud of you that you have your doctorate, you know, and, and but I don't believe anything you talk about. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Well, and to me, I was like, well, you know, he never used to tell me I'm, he's proud of anything. So that part, I'll take that. You know, that's fine. But yeah, at the end, yeah, yeah. But at the end, he said, you know what? Now I get what you talk about. And yeah. I just smiled and I said, I'm so happy, Dad, because, you know, yeah. what a beautiful thing, right? He said, yes. Um, so, but what I wanted to, to shift back is, is the opposite experience I had with my grandmother. And I think this is why. I was, it, well, I've been an experiencer my whole life, like probably you mm-hmm. two. And um, so I come from that background and I've always believed that consciousness is non-local. Um, mm-hmm. And after I got over my fear of death is blackness, you know, and I started understanding mm-hmm. it's so much more than that. You, you know, I've always had, a, you know, that perspective that we just shift energetic forms shift and we become pure consciousness, but we don't, you know, it's not like death. But my grandmother, when I was 17 years old, this was incredibly traumatic. And I always vowed that if another loved one passed, it would never, it could never go down this way. We were moving. I'd finished my um, junior year of high school 
uh, in Ohio, <laughs> in Cincinnati, and we were going to move to Toledo, Ohio. And my parents were building a house, but the house wasn't going to be ready until the school year started. So we spent the summer at my grandparents' home in Miami, Florida, and my grandmother was dying of cancer. She didn't have a lot of time left. Mm-hmm. And she had colon cancer, inoperable stage four colon cancer. But my oh, grandfather oh, was a, yes, he was a very strong, kind of scary personality. And we were in his home and I was a kid, right? My mother was kind of afraid of him. And he decided he did not want my grandmother to know she was dying. So he forbade mm-hmm. us, told us absolutely no way on earth are you allowed to tell your grandmother she's dying. I told her she has polyp and that's what you're going to tell her. And because, you know, I was 17, but you know, you really still are a kid and you're, you're, you you know, you're actually living in someone else's home at the time. And you've been taught that you always respect the wishes of somebody's home, you know, and my mother was fearful of him and and didn't speak up to him. And so we all sort of tiptoed around and my grandmother, some, you know, sometimes she'd cry out in pain and we couldn't go and sit there and hold her hand and talk to her about anything. In fact, my grandfather, she was actually in the bed, in her bedroom, in their bedroom. Mm-hmm. And he refused to let hospice come in because see, if hospice had come, then she might have figured out she was dying. So she basically was just medicated in their bedroom and he would tell you're not allowed to go in the bedroom you're not allowed to go in the bedroom you stay out here with me you're not allowed to go in the bedroom and so my yes so you know we were moving we had moved several times before that it was very traumatic this was the fifth high school I was going to go through to I was you know all the moving was very difficult and I loved my grandmother I was extremely close to her and I was dying to go in and hold her hand and just be with her. But I was really scared of my grandfather because he was scary. And it was the most confusing, horrible thing. I was filled with guilt. It was, I I, I can't imagine my grandmother didn't know and she died all alone. And, you know, I've struggled with that my whole, most of my, most of my life, most of my life. Mm. And she finally came back to visit me. It took 40 years, 40 years she waited. And, um, and then she came back very strongly. And um, I, I became very peaceful. You know, it was a very loving exchange. And, and, I, and, and she said she knew and it was okay and all that. But that, after that happened, I vowed that this is like the most horrific, non-validating, cruel, way to let somebody die alone and there's family members that love this person and they're they're shooed out of the room and you're not allowed to have loving um palliative support because then you might figure out you're dying so i took that left a very big impression on me and so i the trajectory of my life in some ways changed and um yeah and so when my father got sick of course my life had changed a great deal and in between studying and and just a lot of my own personal experiences I was able to be for there for him but it was imperative that he had a different experience 
And I was going to see that no matter what, no matter who's screaming at this one and yelling at this one. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that I could do like you, right? Whatever I could do to honor it and speak with him and love him and touch him and, and yeah, instead yeah. of sing, play the music and, and be there in every way I possibly could. Um, yeah, yeah. Because nobody, n- nobody should have to go through that. You know, it was, it was awful. That, that's awful. And that leaves such another friend of mine, as I was telling my story, a very good friend of mine, I was telling my story about how things went. She, I've never seen her cry, let alone just melted down and I'm like I'm so sorry and she's like my dad died alone and I was like I'm so because I I didn't know what to say she's like no it's okay I need this but I can't it's important for the people who are living to be part of that transition as well or it, it leaves what you're sensing which is just that profound sense of guilt that you left that person alone even though there are reasons and they will understand once they transition it still sucks yes it was it 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 really scarred me I struggled with that like I said till she actually I struggled with it until she came back to visit me yeah um yeah but it's it's right it's really really difficult and um so I don't know how we take that that fear that's embedded in a lot of us. And, and, you know, I think as you see a person physically changing before your eyes, right. And, you know, we all know, you know, it's not always a pretty physical sight, but they're still the same being, the same person, the same soul that we've always loved. And that doesn't change. So I think that's another piece of the education, right. To learn how that just because you're physically changing, okay, I need to figure out a way that I can um, I can handle this. I can be okay with this, so I can, mm-hmm. you know, not get scared. I I cannot, yeah. you know, oh gosh, it reminds me of my own mortality, or oh, I don't know what to do, or you know, and that's really important, I think. Yeah. So. Yeah. Whew. I know it's heavy. That was a, that's a lot. <laughs> I'm like, that's in it's stuff that's been on my mind for gosh, well since March. Yeah, the whole <sighs> thing is 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 difficult, and you know when people don't recognize what's happening with their loved one, they can do things that they think are helpful, and they're not. And when you talked about your grandfather, you were afraid of him. That mm-hmm. reminded me of sitting by my grandmother while she was, was dying. Now we knew, everybody knew, and I was 17 as well. Oh, wow. I almost swear we had the same family. <laughs> because your description of mother and father, I'm like, yeah. I think we're the same person. We just got split in half. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so anyway, I... I remember watching my grandmother go and she was, she was not conscious. She was, she was in a, a state of rapid eye movement. 
Her breathing was different, and my grandfather kept trying to feed her teaspoons of milk. Oh, no. And, of course, she just kept, her body kept rejecting it. And this was going on, and my mother and her siblings were just not saying anything to him. And so I was the one that just reached out, and when he tried to put the spoon up to her lips one more time, I just took it from his hand gently and shook my head and said, no, yeah, stop. You need to stop now. And he looked at me, and he started to open his mouth, and I said, where she's going she doesn't need that and all you're doing is is making a pain and we don't need that now and he just and luckily my mother's youngest brother who's only nine years older than me um basically said give that to me dad and and he took it away and that was when grandpa finally was like oh this really is yeah now is the time yeah um and i'm glad that i did that um i don't know how i did it i just i just my mouth opened i guess the editor was asleep or something and it just popped out of my mouth and i was like no this this is what has to happen yeah so that's that's something and that's why i said to kendra i was like don't let anybody you know what is right your mom knows what is right yeah do what you know is right yeah that's one of the things important yeah one of the things my mom always taught she talked about when i was born and this is something that i've thought about um After I was born, she said that she held me and she goes, I'm the only one that did this where we just, she's like, we had this eye contact that was deep and lingering. And she said, it felt like we were connecting on a very deep level. And as they, after the doctor told her, the uh, hospitalist came in and told her in the emergency room. And she and I just stared at each other and kind of shared a connection again. And she even said, you know, she retold that story after we relaxed a little bit. But um, I kind of wonder with the, the way I felt, this is going to sound really out there and weird, but I almost feel in some ways like I wonder if this is a lesson my soul needed was to experience this moment. And that's why when I was born, we shared that moment where I was like, I'm here with a purpose. I'm, I'm here for something. And you're a part of that something. I've been wondering about that over the last. That doesn't sound weird at all to me. Yeah. In my view, that's like the norm. No, that makes perfect sense to me, you know, in every way. It's it's almost like a yeah. comes full circle, right? Like, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of the exact term, but yeah, it's yeah. No, it really makes sense to me on every level. Thank you. And I, and I hope that comforts you in some way. Yeah, know, it does actually. Yeah, but one of my like favorite, um, you know, like you know how we all like 
resonate with certain quotes, you know, we come across at times. And there's one by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a pioneer in um, near-death experiences. She wrote the book on death and dying. She once said that death is not a medical event. Death is a spiritual one. And I all, and this is, I read this way, I mean, like probably two decades before my dad died. And that really stuck with me. Um, yeah. And, and that's the way. So, you know, mentally, intellectually, when I read that, it was an intellectual thing. It was sort of like, yeah, I get yeah. it. Oh, that sounds really good. That's cool. But when I was with my father, that's when I kept thinking about that quote. And that's when it really, really hit me at a soul level, right? Because I'm like, oh my gosh, she's so right. Um, And that's what I really believe. I believe it's a spirit. It's a spiritual uh, phenomena. Yeah. Um, And and it's it's a medical, but it really isn't. You know, it's it's a spiritual transition. And um, yeah, I think that's um, that's something that if we all could keep in mind would would be very helpful. So one of the things that talking about each of us having souls and our souls communicating, it makes me think about this experience I had. So my nephew's fiance went missing um, several years ago. Uh, Again, I was pregnant, but I was pregnant with my second child for this one. And I didn't know it at the time. I found out while I was searching um, on the searches um, that I was pregnant. But at some point, between the time she had gone missing and it had only been a few days into the searching, I was sleeping on my mother's sofa and I woke up with a start and I knew she was gone. It was like, she, I I just got the sense of Caitlin's dead and somebody else in my family, I can't remember who later said something about, I woke up and I was sure that she was gone and I'm like, and it was around the same time. So I won. It makes me appreciate the soul in each of us. And the fact that that soul can still, can still communicate. We didn't find her remains for two years. It was five miles outside of our search radius. And it was, I won't talk about it cause that's its own brutality. Um, it it was truly awful, um, but yeah, it just it talk when you talk about souls and communication that that's something that really you know she and I weren't tight we weren't close like my nephew and I were we were we would text back and forth and we would chat um, she was trying to kind of help me form a better relationship with that nephew um, which I was. I was just bad at doing with him for some reason, but she would, they would come up and hang out now and again. So we had a relationship. It just wasn't a tight one. And I think she knew the kind of things that I was into. And then I, I believe in the step aside as I call it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's just something I think about with communication. Yet another dead person in my family. Oh gosh. Well, you know, I don't think we always have to be, close because that again i mean how we define close here right yeah isn't necessarily that's true you know it's our narrow vision of it right 
Um, and it could be that she just, once she passed, she knew that I was someone who could hear her. Yes, I think that's a big part of it. I, I do. was about to suggest that. Yeah. Because I, another, a friend of mine passed away, gosh, years and years ago. And I got the goodbye dream and I'm like, why me? There are so many other people that you could have visited with this energy. And in think, and I've always kind of puzzled that. It's like, why did Bob choose me? And then I, in talking, I'm like, now it helps me understand that I, I think he just recognized that I could hear him. I think that's true for you know, any sort of extraordinary experience we have. Um, and it happens and comes to to those of us who can receive it, right? Who can understand a process yeah. of receive it, hear it. And um, because I've had experiences similar to that. Um, and yeah, I absolutely agree. Personally, yeah. I resonate with that, you know? Yeah. So, um, Yeah. But I think that that communication and and I know I'm I'm going backwards and but I've never had this is the only um, loved one that passed that I had, you know, your stereotypical, quote, paranormal kind of contact with. This was my fraternal grandmother, my dad's grandmother. And I loved her, but we didn't see her very often. We were living in Kansas at the time. She lived in um in um, New York City and she didn't have a lot of money so she wasn't able to come out and see us very often and my dad was working a million hours we didn't really go up to see her often but I really loved her she died on my birthday so I was in Kansas she was in New York City but she died on my 13th birthday and my parents were planning to fly to New York for her funeral and I begged my parents to take me um, because I wanted to say goodbye to her and have close. She died very suddenly. She, uh, she had the flu. Uh, she never went to the doctor. She oh, no. became very ill very quickly. Um, and, and just died in her home. But anyway, I did really, really want to go and I begged them and I begged them. I said, look, I'm a really good student. So I missed like three or four days of school. Like who cares? They, absolutely refused to take me and they wouldn't give me a reason. And so my sister and I had to stay with, with some family friends and I had enormous, horrible guilt that I couldn't say goodbye to her. I was so guilty. And, um, so my birthday's in January. So this was in the winter and I thought, you know, Mm -hmm. grandma died on my birth, like, like, is that some kind of message or whatever? Did she hold out for that? So, Fast forward six months later, um, it's Kansas, it's the summer, I think it was like June, July, I don't remember. And um, the windows were closed. Uh, it was it was really hot in eight. We had central air, but my parents' idea of like a cool house was like 82 degrees. Now, I'm not, it was horrible. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it really That's wasn't. Crazy. It was, <laughs> so I couldn't go to sleep. I, I was just like in bed, but I wasn't sleeping at all. And, all, and I had a sheet. I, I, I did want a sheet around me. And this was something like really, like seriously, like a paranormal movie. So I wasn't asleep. I was lying in bed. My eyes were closed. And all of a sudden, I had the sheet around me. And all of a sudden, it was like, tug, tug, tug. I don't mean like a little, like a little, you know, oh, my gosh. What what was that? I mean, the sheet started tugging off of me. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, this is like a scary movie. What's going on? I was terrified. I was Terrified. And simultaneously, the temperature of the air surrounding me dropped like 20 degrees. 
you know, and you could really tell because it was so hot in the house. It probably dropped to oh like my the high 50s. I was terrified. My heart was beating out of my chest and I was too afraid to open my eyes. Okay. So I scrunched them shut in the dark. And then all of a sudden, the energy in the room completely shifted and it filled with love. I can't even explain it. And I know everybody always says this, but it is absolutely impossible to explain the depth. Uh, I would say it's so profound. It escapes human words. The love on, and I call it the other side, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever. Um, and this, this palpable, it was palpable. Love filled the room. I could feel it like, like bouncing through my body. And then I heard my grandmother's voice. And I, in retrospect, I wish I hadn't been so fearful because I know I could have seen her. I knew, I knew she was there, but I was still too scared. And she said to me really loud, she said, this is the love on the other side. She said, this is where I am now. And she said, and I'm so happy here. She said, but I have one message for you. She said, you've been feeling really guilty that you, your parents won't let you come to New York to my funeral. And she said, well, why feel guilty? She said, this is what it's like over there. Can you imagine guilt, like, right, with this love? And she said, I want you yeah. to let go of that guilt yeah. and never, never feel that way again. I love you so much. That, boom, the room got warm. The sheets stopped tugging. And I started crying. And I was like, oh, my God. So it was sort of like part beautiful and transcendent and it was part like oh my god this is like a ghost story but the bottom line is it's the first time in my life that I was shown that enormous inexplicable love that you hear near-death experiencers describe and immediately absolutely immediately the second her presence left the guilt left I never felt guilty again instead I just was so happy to have experienced that love and know what that's like and to know that she was happy and right there. You're right. Grandma, there was no reason to feel guilt. So that was a very powerful, um, like, you know, uh, return, I, I would say, and comfort and communication. I, I haven't had anything like that since, uh, but so it was pretty, and it was telepathic, but it, it was amazing. That's, That's fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. But a little paranormalish with the tugging of the sheets. And the, yeah, for real. You know, that was yeah. a little, little freaky. Yeah. So, but I guess she really wanted my attention. So she got it. Yeah. Was she your Jewish grandmother? The what? I'm sorry. Was she your Jewish grandmother? Well, they were both Jewish. Yeah, <laughs> everybody was Jewish. Yeah, I, I yeah. Just, we, I just feel like it, I I dreamed about my husband's Jewish family last night, including some of the the ones who were gone, and uh, the, the, I I feel like in death as in life, they they let you know they're not shy. There is no shyness from them. They tell you right now. And so that's probably why she tugged on the covers a little bit. Yeah. She it wanted to be. make sure you knew. Yeah. And she was a really strong 
personality and life, which when mm-hmm. I was little kind of put me off because it was a little like my mother. But you know what? Underneath that, she was such a loving person. And as I got older, I was really, really starting to appreciate it and develop a much stronger relationship with her as I became a teenager. But unfortunately, she died, you know, when I was 13. So, but I was just at that point where, yeah. And, and you know, the other thing too, and I, I don't know if this has any bearing on anything, but there's different forms of Judaism, right? There's reform, mm-hmm. conservative, and, and orthodox, and then actually Hasidic. We were reform. And so really, which is the most liberal and mm-hmm. uh, right form of Judaism. So nobody in my family, I mean, including either of my grandparents, nobody, we were, none of us were religious. I mean, I would say a lot of the family was either agnostic or atheist. Um, I was always spiritual. I always believed in God or, you know, whatever you may call, um, you know, that, but, um, but we didn't, we, we didn't have that, that fear, you know, there was no dogma, right? There was no, like, this is bad or this is good or this is heaven or this is hell. That didn't exist in my family. Right. That wasn't part of our uh, of our vision or our life. And so I wonder sometimes if that has made it easier for my dad to come through and my grandmother to come through. I mean, I don't know. I, I really I'm just throwing it out there. I don't know. Um, I, actually, I'm thinking I, about it. Too I, now. I think that not having the fear of hell, not having the fear of eternal damnation. If there was one thing that I could take from Christianity, if I could take it away and throw it down a garbage disposal, it would be that whole hellfire and damnation business. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm I'm pretty sure that that was not necessary at all. And I don't think it was probably part of the original message. And it's, it, it certainly doesn't exist in Judaism. It was no. their scared straight program. Yeah, and Jesus was was yeah. Jewish. I I don't all that stuff came later. And yeah. and I think that it's healthier just on a on a everyday physical level not to walk around with that fear. And I think it's healthier on a spiritual level as you transition out of the physical life to non-local consciousness to not have this oh my god i have to go and be judged i i i just think that that's just horribly unhealthy and so your experience with your grandmother and your father and their ease with you know communicating with you i i wouldn't put it past that being because they did not grow up with that fear of damnation yeah yeah i you know like i said that just popped into my head as we're speaking i never thought about it before um but you know when i think about my father-in-law like i mentioned um who died in the hospital also of cancer um you know there was such they had that enormous the whole family that enormous enormous fear my husband used to too i mean he's lived with me long enough that i think now he's like <laughs> his whole vision just changed so paradigm but um 
but yes, he, his father, my father-in-law couldn't, he, he didn't, he couldn't have the experience that I could wish he could have because of the fear. Um, right. And, and I think it made it really difficult for him. Um, yeah. but you know, I, I do agree with that. It's sad, but yes, you know, it's, well, and death is scary enough alone. Why add that? I mean, it's really, it's, it, as I said earlier, I think it's the, the threat of eternal damnation held over your head for your entire life to try to guide you in a way that somebody who wrote the book wanted you to behave, but it does nothing for the people as they transition. It's the worst thing. Right. Right. Well, it doesn't it take sound like your mother. I don't know what your mother's beliefs were, but it doesn't sound like she believed that. My mom. I mean, you said she was Catholic, but but it yeah. sounds like she somehow moved beyond that, or she really did, and I don't remember why. But it, and I think it was just been a long. It was a long process because when I was in college was when she really started talking about um, all time is now, um, mm -hmm. where and that you know, that kind of thing. And then she started reading books. I think there's one called Buddhism for Catholicism that she started reading, that it brought in these beliefs, but kept it within the framework that it didn't take her too far out of, you know, there being a God. And plus mm -hmm. she was very much the, the only thing I need in order to be a good Catholic is the Apostles' Creed. That's it. The rest is Grigri. And I always like that. Um, I don't know because what that it, is. What, what um, is the Apostles' Creed? It's believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, of all that okay. is seen and unseen. It's okay. that part where it really just boils down what Christianity is supposed to be. Yeah, that makes and, sense. Yeah, and the rest is just men piling crap on it. Um, for me, it's I like Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount, I'm like, that's Jesus at his best. And that's that's really what Catholicism, what Christianity is, should be, is that Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the that stuff that's just saying, it's not saying I'm making a new religion. It's saying, hey, current Jewish people, here's how to be a better Jewish person. Here's how to be more like God wants you to be. Um, and the peacemakers. Yes. So, yeah. And, you know, even though I'm not, I've never, I came into this world that I guess understanding that, well, thinking or whatever you want to say that dogma and, you know, strict dogma is, um, mm -hmm. it's, it separates us. It doesn't bring us together. And, and the one, so I never really, and, and Judaism doesn't really, you know, the way I was brought up, very, very reformed. It, there is no dogma, right? And and the one piece, though, that I took, Barbara, I'm sure you, you know, you do, but um, is that it's a living religion, right? I mean, you just, you just try to live every day being the most kind, giving, caring person and, and just do a mitzvah every day, which basically the way I was taught just means do a good deed, do something kind without expecting anything in return. But isn't that something that's just universal? So I, I always just looked at, you know, anything that's fear-based um, and rigid 
separates us. And yeah. it's, it, that's, that's the opposite to me. And I think when, when you're with, you sit with a dying person, you say, wait, what? There is no separation, right? I mean, it's, it's like this love and, and connection and it's, it's not about that at all. So yeah, yeah it always kind of confused me growing up, I think. Um, yeah, but so I, I feel a little lucky, I guess, that I didn't have to, to deal with that, uh, well, you know, guilt or scare. I'm terrified. Oh my gosh. If I don't do this, you know, something terrible might happen to me, but, um, the best thing to happen to me was sister Ruth told me I'm going to hell and I'm like, great. I'm free to do whatever the heck I want because I'm going to hell anyway. <laughs> So thank oh, you, Sister so, Ruth. It was a, that, so that is that yep. is the coyote way to deal with yeah. that. Yep. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> That's so oh. funny. Oh my gosh. Well, I think, ladies, we have we have talked through almost everything. Kendra, do you have, have more to add? I don't think I do. I think, I think you, I'm good. I think you did really well. Thank you. Kendra, was, you it was so was touching. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I I I've been sitting with it all day. Um my I'm in my office where I brought a lot of my mother's belongings and in fact <laughs> Next to me, I have her ashes and then grave dirt from my father's grave. And I'm going to find a way to put them together in, in dual urns. But I've been kind of using, you know, thinking about her. And very, I've been very um, present when I place each thing that was hers. And I really just use this as kind of a putting things in place and kind of helping me transition myself into this new world that I'm in. So I'm, I'm really working on it. <laughs> you know, Kendra, my father died in 2016 and oh. you know, I, I, everyone always says, Oh, it'll get easier. It'll get easier to, you know, whatever. And the first two years were incredibly, incredibly difficult for me. Um, and there were times where I, w I was okay, you know, I was fine. And then I would curl up in a ball on the floor and cry. And, you know, we each have to find our own way, right, of handle, of, mm -hmm. of dealing with it. And, and it, we do probably have a, at least the gift of understanding it from maybe a perspective that's comforting. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, it's a process and it's hard. And it is. And I still struggle. I struggle not on the day he died. I struggle on his birthday, which is in April. And I said to my husband this yeah. year, this April, because I start getting really upset, you know, maybe three weeks before then. And I said to my husband, oh, my gosh, I think I finally figured out why I get so upset in April. I said, because he was diagnosed in March and I couldn't fly down until April, like right around his birthday yeah. was when I flew yeah. down. So I always associate the birthday with, okay, this is the beginning of, you yeah. know, a transition um so you know like we you. each have to do whatever and it's different for everybody i think 
Yeah. You know. There is actually something that I've been thinking about and trying to figure out a word for it, if you don't mind me going on a little bit more. Um, I call it the trauma cocoon, where it's that mix of shock and all the emotions that you have, where it's like your brain and dissociation, and it's all you're encapsulated in this moment, and the anxiety of the stupid thing you did when you were 16 years old that wakes you up at night is not there, and the dumb thing you said yesterday is not there. It's like you are raw and you are present. And at the same time, you're not present, but that's something like, I feel like I go back to that place where I encapsulate myself in the moment and feel it and experience it and allow it to exist. I don't shove it away. I just allow this to happen. And I think that's been part of my journey is learning that relationship with that time in my life and allowing it to exist. So, wow, I'm trying not to cry because that really touched sorry. me. No, I am serious. Like, there are things you've said all along. I've been really, you know, trying to keep it together. Um, and I don't even know what to say. That, that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I actually may do a blog post about that because I, I all along, I was taking notes on my phone. Just what am I thinking? Little snippets of memories, little just notes. I called it uh, notes from the trauma box before I decided it's more of a cocoon than a box because it's shaped like me. So yeah, I've never heard it expressed that way. This one's saying like it, yeah. it's very uh, powerful, you know, and I, I want to thank you because this is recent for you and it's raw and you have been so open and honest sharing everything. And it's, it's really touched me. Um, and I want to thank you for sharing everything. You are very welcome. And I'm glad I could give back to you what you gave to me. Oh, thank you. Well, that's what it's all about, right? That's what, to me, yeah. life, it, that's what it is. we're here for. So, yeah. So I think this was a really important conversation. I know it was difficult, but I think it was good, yeah. you know, really healthy and, um, and hopefully helpful to people that are listening. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Barbara. I feel weird saying thank you, Barbara, because it's I know. <laughs> <laughs> I like I'm talking to myself. <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> and uh, thank you, Kendra. I know this was hard, but. I knew you really wanted to do it. so I did. And thank you for the space to let me express this and to kind of unpack this for myself and for other people. Well, thank you both. Well, thank you for having me back and being part of this really profound conversation.
Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you.